Welcome to Brave, Bold, Brilliant. Your host, Jeanette Linfoot, talks to incredible people about their experiences and unleashing their full potential. From the boardroom tables of big international business to the dining room tables of entrepreneurial startups, embracing opportunities, overcoming challenges, taking risks, while staying true to yourself is where the magic happens. Hi, it's Jeanette here. If you're enjoying Brave, Bold, Brilliant, I'd love it if you'd subscribe, share with your friends and leave a five-star review. Let's do it. Here's the show. So welcome to the Brave, Bold, Brilliant podcast. I'm your host, Jeanette Linfoot, and I'm here today with a fabulous author, editor, former assistant editor of the Financial Times and political editor, and actually my wonderful cousin, Brian Groom. Nice to see you. Hi, good to see you. (laughs) (laughs) There's so many positions you've held. I mean, I can't get them all out in an intro, but essentially you've had a lifetime in journalism, haven't Mm -hmm. you? And also um, author as well, which we're going to talk about as Mm -hmm. well soon. So, um, so yeah, we're going to get into all of this. And I think the whole changing world of media, um, how you started life, where you've ended up today and kind of what you're passionate about mm-hmm. is what we're going to get uh, into in detail. So can we start with your journey, Brian, a little bit around your background, kind of where life started for you and kind of where you've ended up and then we'll just go from there. Yeah, well, I'm from Stratford like you. Um, <laughs> I went to a quite posh grammar school and I got to Oxford and I read English and uh, um, I didn't think about careers at all. I did lots of theatre, directed plays, acted, but I I knew I didn't want to do that professionally. So I thought uh, at the end of my time, I thought, well, what can you do with an English degree that um, will make a living and um, isn't teaching? (laughs) And uh, I remember journalism and I was keen on when I was about 12, uh, I thought, well, I'll try that. and it's quite hard to get in. I almost didn't get in. I was unemployed for a bit after university and uh, I was applying for, uh, for, I was turned down for a job in marketing at Roundtrees and uh, I was filling in forms to be a management trainee at Ford. But then suddenly a vacancy occurred on a weekly paper. So I, I started and I became sports editor of a paper called the Gould Times, South Yorkshire between Doncaster and Hull. Yeah, I uh, did that for a while, and then I made the uh, quite a leap to the Financial Times um, uh, for complicated reasons. Which, um, and I ended up working there for in a couple of stints for almost three decades, and did lots of the top jobs in there. But in the in the in the in the middle of that, in the end of the eighties, um, I went to Scotland to launch a new paper called Scotland on the Sunday, which is the Scotsman Sunday paper. Um, at first as deputy editor, and then I edited that, and then I left that and went back to the FT. And so um, I did another stint there and um, uh, did, did various of the top jobs. And then, um, but I then left in the end of 2014, decided to move back to my roots and move back north here in Saddleworth, in actually in historic West Yorkshire, then Lancashire, and um, uh, with the idea of doing some freelancing and I had the idea for the for a book then, so I was going to start work on the book. And um, so that's what we've done and had a fantastic time. Wow. It's, it, and, and actually, you know, I always remember because we're, we're, I'm younger than you are, Brian. So you were always sort of, you know, the role model, someone to look up to, in particular when I was deciding universities and all the rest of it. Um, so I've sort of 
sort of, I suppose, observed your career from afar and thought, my gosh, like the Financial Times, that is like a big deal, isn't it? I mean, it's it's a newspaper that's renowned. It's it's kind of up there in terms of, I guess, credibility of journalism. Was it was it as as daunting as, as a place to be as I imagine, or was it just that you naturally fitted in and you just loved it so much? It was quite. Um, I mean, I would say actually that the the Oxford background helped. Yeah, let's the, talk about that a little it bit. Was, yeah. Um, it was it, it was quite a posh paper, and a lot of people had Oxbridge backgrounds. Mm. So, in a sense, um, that it wasn't that difficult to fit in there. Yeah, it was at the end of the seventies, talking nineteen seventy eight. It was quite male, very white male, not very diverse. Yeah, it wasn't at that stage a global newspaper. It was a UK newspaper. Um, um, and um, the. the it, a quirk of the history of newspapers was that to try and uh, impose some training and order and standards on the industry, the national newspaper publishers had an agreement with the National Union of Journalists that you couldn't take a job on a Fleet Street paper without doing at least three years in the provinces or on a trade paper. Right. Because uh, previously there had been a kind of rough hire and fire and no training in the industry. Mm. Um, so I was somebody coming to them with an Oxbridge first, um, but I'd done my, I'd gone through the filter. I'd done my provincial stint. Yeah. Um, so from that point of view, I was probably quite an attractive hire from them at that point. And it was a, a straight, it's an odd relationship. My first appearance in the FT was not as a journalist. It was as a student actor. I got reviewed on the arts page. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> and I never imagined that three years later I'd be working for that paper. Because I, I did an English degree. I've not a, I didn't have an economics or business background. Uh, in fact, in the week of my first interview there, I thought I read the paper and I thought, crikey, I don't understand half of what's in here. <laughs> a feeling that never completely left me. <laughs> Well, this is interesting because we're going to talk, I think we'll talk a little bit around, you know, imposter syndrome mindset and and sort of feeling that you fit into a place. But at the same time, I guess, you know, being respectful of of our roots and and where we're from and and what have you Mm -hmm. as well. I think that's important. So so that feeling of, of, you know, maybe maybe am I in over my head here? Do I have to wing it? Was was that a fleeting, a fleeting time, really? Or or was it was it something that stayed with you, do you think? Um, well, it's, it's fleet, it, in the sense that you, the paper's kind of in two halves. The front half is politics and international affairs and business in its more political sense and policy, and the back half is companies and markets. Yeah. And I've, I've, um, I most of my career has been on the front end stuff, mm. which you don't need that much technical knowledge do to do. I mean, I have had training courses on. How to read a balance sheet. Uh, so in theory, I know how to do a discounted cash flow forecast. Oh, so excellent. That I, can come I, in handy. I'm not, not sure I'd <laughs> trust myself to do one. Um, but you, know, you have to be flexible in journalism. For three years, um, I ended. Up, I, I wrote a, a column in the uh, a daily column in the companies and markets section about European business. Mm. How did you go about mm-hmm. that then? Given that that wasn't that your natural background. Well, I, I, it wasn't a. It wasn't like Lex, the Lex column. It wasn't a kind of financial analysis and yeah. valuation column. It was. It was to do. It's about people, really. Most journalism is about people. Mm. Um, so it's about people running businesses and what they were like and what the businesses were like and what the patterns were. Um, 
I did join with somebody else who was a specialist in kind of France and Italy. So I focused, uh, it was a European wide column. So I focused on Germany, um, Britain, uh, and the, and Scandinavia, but we could write about any, any place really. Um, yeah. And um, you just got to learn as you go along. Really. Yeah, and, you, and you did a long stint on Fleet Street, a long stint, didn't you? Like you say, yeah. with, with a yeah. gap in yeah. the middle. Yeah, nearly 30 years in total. Yeah, I mean, it's huge. And, and you had some really fascinating, interesting roles during that time. Um, which are the ones that stand out for you the most? And well, the ones that, that people will, 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 will recognise, I think it was, uh, for, I did four years as a labourer or industrial reporter in the early, from 1981 to 1985. So that was at the end of the the great age of of labour reporting, the all the strikes and mm. wage bargaining of the nineteen seventies was still going on. Then, in fact, we thought um, uh, at the time I started that, that the bottom was kind of going. There were that Fleet Street used to have massive specialist teams reporting all that stuff. At the FT, uh, we had a team of five. And half a page of Labour News a day. Other papers had three. Yeah. Um, but the bottom was going out of the market at that time. Uh, we had a Tory government in starting to implement employment legislation, which was curbing union powers. We were getting fewer strikes. So my my job my job was to cover the, the private sector, and I started diversifying into features on HR issues, um, future of work. The um, uh, the at that time the the phrase was labour flexibility. So the, the FT sent me all over Europe to report on what was happening in terms of changing labour markets and people learning new skills and multiple skills and things like that, which is fascinating. Uh, so I was just diversifying all that. Then the miners' strike came along and it was like a kind of last throw of the 1970s. Yeah, Went yeah. on for a year. It was very vicious. But um, so I, I, was, I did it through all that. So that was a very notable period. And probably the second other period in my reporting uh, I mean, uh, that people would know is uh, in the early 2000s, I was political editor for a period. Um, um, in a sense, it was quite a dull period. I, mean, I got to cover the, um, the the dullest general election in modern political history, which was the second Blair landslide of 2001. But then 9-11 happened. So I got on that and the aftermath of all that. Um, I was in the air. I was traveling all around the world in Tony Blair's plane for for months after 9-11, wow. visiting all kinds of places. Um, and I covered the run up to the invasion of Iraq. Gosh. So so you would have spent time directly with, with Blair during that period. Yeah, you yeah quite, quite a lot. lot of time. Quite a lot, yes. yes, yes. And he was an FT reader, which was, a, was the only paper he read. Really? Yes. I'm sure he got summaries of all the yeah. papers every day. But he was a he was an established reader of the FT before he became prime minister. So, so how was how was that as a relationship then? Because that sounds like you were you were relatively close to him. Not, during well, that not period, that close. Or... No, no. I mean, he was uh, he was a savvy politician. He knew <clears throat> where everybody was. Like he had Harold Wilson used to have the great ability to pick out people in a huge press conference and he knew them all by first name. Yeah, um, yeah. Blair could do all that. Yes, um, he, he was. Politicians are usually the way they seem, in my experience. So, uh, and it was it was useful. There were no special favours from that. No, no, I can and imagine. I wrote several stories that Downing Street hated. So. Yeah, I was going to ask you actually about about I suppose personal conflict because you'll have your own personal views about whatever situation you're reporting on. How do you keep the neutrality? Um, I've, I've tried to need? keep that out of it, and I've had the great fortune to spend my entire career working on 
politically independent newspapers that mm. um, where impartiality is required. So I try and keep any politics of mine well out of it. And in the in the um, in the lobby, they all try to label you. Um, the politicians want to the other papers want to label you, and the politicians want to label you so they can put you in a box and say, "Well, that person's saying this because right. they're from X background." Uh, I, I don't think they ever really worked me out. And the um, the big thing in my period, early 2000s, was the Blair-Brown wars. So, yeah. you know, people are always trying to label you a Blairite or a Brownite. Uh, so, for example, in the in my early months, I realised that, um, that um, Peter Mandelson was avoiding me. Right. <laughs> and I'd hardly met him. I'd met him once before. I had nothing, not much to do. And I thought, what's, go what's going on here? And I worked out that what must be happening um, was that um, um, uh, Mandelson was very close to Blair, so he's the key Blairite, um, and there had been a bit big falling out with Gordon Brown. Um, but um, the the political editor of the FT, um, uh, uh, well, two things. I, I the political editor, we, we split up the departments within the team. So you got the number one covers Downing, covers number 10 Downing Street and the Treasury. It's a big thing for the FT. Yeah. So you're quite close to the Chancellor. And my predecessor was Robert Peston, uh, now on ITN, who, yes. um, who uh, uh, was, re people tried to label as, it was, was regarded as close to Brown. Right. And I think Mandelson thought, put two and two together and thought, well, uh, he's, on, he's on the FT. He followed Robert Peston and um, he writes a lot about the Treasury. So um, he must be a Brownite. So yeah. he was avoiding me. Wow. <laughs> ages. Um, I eventually, think, uh, uh, I found a way of getting through to him. Um, um, I got another, a colleague who was closer to Blair to invite him to dinner in Brighton at the party conference with all our team. And mm. that went reasonably well when he was Northern Ireland Secretary. And then when he was fired for the second time, um, uh, I covered it very fairly. I think he came to realise that I was not uh, I was not biased in any yeah. <laughs> any particular direction. Wow, gosh! I mean, it's fascinating, really, isn't it? Because you, you're reporting on politics, but there's politics within politics <laughs> at the FT and how you, and, and the relationships oh, yeah, and how yeah, you navigate yeah. through all of you that. You have to navigate all that. Yes. Yeah, and <laughs> you, you started. You said earlier, Brian, that um, you know politics is all about people. It's all about, you know, relationships mm -hmm. and people. And, you know, if you think about the skills that you've had to develop over the years yeah. in that area, communication skills, influencing skills, all of that sort of stuff, um, what's helped you the most, do you think, in, in terms of being able to be a very, a very good journalist and also editor? Oh, I think you just... There's an old saying heard early on in my career that news is people and you just have to remember it's all about people and mm. that's what other people are interested in and it doesn't matter if you're working for the ft or the wall street journal or um or the sun or whatever that's that's at the root of i know we uh, we, we have a lot of numbers these days and we all get a bit obsessed about numbers but at the end mm. of the day it's it, it's about the people behind them yeah, yeah, and you and and the balance. You said you spent a lot of time in the field. Uh, so, what's the balance between? Well, what was the balance for you between being in the field um, versus being in the office in Fleet Street doing actually, actually writing everything up? And how does it work? Well, I mean, slight, slightly more, slightly just above half of my career has been in backroom editing jobs. Yeah. So, I've only been kind of public facing reporting jobs, just under half, mm. and. Uh, Journalists kind of divide, I think, between those who become specialists. You know, some people become known as 
especially in education or whatever, and spend their entire career working in one narrow field. Mm. Uh, I'm much more of a generalist. Uh, uh, so I've moved around quite a lot beyond different sides of the business into different kinds of jobs. Mm. Um, to me, that was more interesting because I just got to see the world from more different viewpoints. Yeah, but yeah. people are different. So yeah, mm. yeah, absolutely. So let, let's talk a little bit around um, journalism and, and how it's probably changed and evolved. Because mm. you left the FT. What year did you leave the FT? Uh, it was September 2014. 2014. So yeah, okay. So what? Eight years, nearly eight. Well, mm-hmm. seven, eight, seven years ago. Um, and since then, I know you're focusing on the book, and we're going to talk about that because that's really exciting. Mm-hmm. Um, but in terms of of, of um, you sort of leaving the FT and moving into, you know, coming back up north and making that decision to leave London after all those years. Mm-hmm. I know you went to Edinburgh and we'll talk about that as well. But was that a big wrench to leave to leave London or did you have a natural calling to kind of come back closer to home and to your roots, would you uh, say? We talked about it for years. It was, it was not exactly planned. We'd always, my wife and I had always talked about moving back north when I finished. Only ever moved south for work purposes in the first place. Yeah. Had never any ambition to move south. Or- yeah. Um, but it was where the kind of jobs in my field were, so that's where you had to go. I, I loved London, but it was it was it was fun to live there, and our kids were brought up there mostly. But um, we'd always we'd always had a yearning to come back north, and we'd always talked about um, right in the beginning about living in the Pennines. So we we came and looked for somewhere that was in the Pennines, but within a um, easy reach of a big city, mm. which we are, and. Um, uh, and and that's been brilliant. Yeah, I mean, I should say the one probably the one thing people identify me with the thing that the thread that's run through my career um, has been interest in British re- things, British regional, regional things. Yeah. I and mean, apart from the love of the north, which I come from, um, I, I've I've run the F, a couple of times run the FT's regional coverage and run the regional team. Um, it's what took us to Scotland, um, launching a new paper in Scotland. It was, just, it was a fascinating period in Britain's history mm. uh, when you were starting to get big stirrings of devolution. Uh, it's middle of the Thatcher era. Uh, nobody knew what was going to happen. So all that's been that's that's been kind of the 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 the, the thing that's um, motivated me mostly. Even actually in my entrance interview in my Oxford College, I. I found myself oddly waxing lyrical about the state of the arts in the north, and after a bit, they said, "So why do you want to come here?" Right, <laughs> Which yeah, is not yeah. unreasonable, yeah. not an unreasonable question. But it's always been there, um, and I, I got to the stage where I thought, oh, "I've lived slightly more than half my life in the south, and that's not quite right." So. Yeah, yeah, interesting. I mean, obviously, so eight years on from when you left the mm-hmm. FT, um, moved back up north, and significant changes in media and journalism Massive, as well yeah, since it, then. It, it, so I think let's let's kind of jump into that as a as a topic because I think it's fascinating to hear your perspective in terms mm-hmm. of. The pros, the cons, what's changed? What have they been the biggest, the biggest shifts that you think, Brian, in that field? Well, it, it, obviously, the arrival of the internet is posed a huge challenge mm. to the traditional media, um, and in some ways, it's come through better than I would have expected. Uh, certainly, for the national and international publishers, 
they're mostly all still there, the big titles. The Independent yeah. has become a, um, a online-only newspaper and quite successful at that. Um, but the others, I wouldn't necessarily have predicted 10 years ago that, that they'd all still be producing print editions. Mm. Uh, they are still producing print editions, but they also mostly have established quite effective online operations. Um, it's not been easy, but they've by and large done it. I think it's a different story in the regional and local press. Mm. Um, uh, since the early 2000s, we have lost just over a quarter of local and regional titles. Wow. They've had a much, much tougher time. And it's not clear that much as come along to replace them uh, in their communities, yeah. apart from you know, dodgy Facebook groups. Um, yeah. um, but even even the local press, is, as um, things have looked up for a, a bit recently, um, through the pandemic, uh, I think people, they've had a boost because people looked to uh, their local papers for uh, trusted coverage of what was going on with the mm. disease in their area and it's yeah. a place you could find it uh, so that's given them a boost and also there's been a competitive boost in that a lot of the uh, some of the big regional groups have set up online news operations in areas where they don't have newspapers right yeah. to try and capture new markets and that of course creates competition with those other newspaper groups that have newspapers in those areas. So they've, for the first time in as long as I can remember, some of the big regional groups have been hiring over the past year, hiring journalists, not, not in large just, numbers, yeah. but they've been hiring yeah. um, numbers. So that's been, how long will last? I don't know. But um, but so the I'd say the industry, it's, it's, it's clearly a very difficult time and compared with when it there was no competition essentially to to print media. It's mm. uh, it, it's it's a dramatic change, but it's it's come to reasonably well. But you have to view it against the the bigger picture for society, which has been the arrival of social media, the spread of populism, uh, the growth of fake news and conspiracy stories. Mm. Uh, the 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 mainstream media obviously has a part in that picture, but it's a much bigger picture and a much bigger issue for society, I think, than than just the media. Yeah, yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. And, and I think the role of the influencer, as is talked about a lot, you know, if you think about your, you know, the position of newspapers, massive role as influencers in terms of opinions and reporting. And now you've got, you know, a whole host of anyone, pretty much anyone can become an influencer with a following on social mm -hmm. media. What, what do you think of those sort of developments of that side of social media? Do you think it's a good, bad? Indifferent. <laughs> it, it's 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 a mix. I mean, it's the first time in, in my life um, coverage is being led often by the punters, not by the people, by news editors. Yes. Um, in that, the on social media, the public are deciding what they're interested in. Often, it'll be something going, some story going viral on social media, then becomes a mainstream media story, yeah, not always okay. the mainstream media trying to guess what the public are going to be interested in. So that, uh, you know, in a sense, the media is no longer quite in control of the, yeah, the way yeah. things uh, way things happen. So, and uh, it's a good or a bad thing. I don't, I mean, I, lots of, I can think of lots of bad sides, the, the mental health issues yeah. that the, the social media create, particularly, Better conspiracy theories, I think, are 
um, uh, democracy has become very fragile. Uh, 20 years ago, doc democracy was spreading gradually. You know, we got former authoritarian countries were coming into the democratic world. Now democracy is threatened even in America, which is one of the homes of democracy. Yeah. Very fragile there. Nobody would bet against some kind of American civil war in the next 10 or 20 years. Mm -hmm. um, and social media has a big part of that. So that's obviously a huge downside. On the other hand, um, it gives a voice to the voiceless. You know, people who didn't have a voice in the world apart from their friends and relatives in yeah. the past yeah. uh, or writing to newspapers. Um, can have their say in mm. a way. Uh, it can be a dangerous thing, but it's you can't uninvent it. So it's a it's a way of how we cope with that and how we um, uh, uh, encourage people to um, uh, uh, to believe in to to uh, to sensibly investigate what's true and what's not true. Mm. Yeah, yeah. No, it's fascinating. Interesting. Actually. I went. I went. Uh, about three years ago, I went back to my old secondary school to give a talk on the history of the media and where the media was going. And I prepared lots of stuff on, on are there going to be any jobs in the media in the future? And mm. I thought that would be what they all wanted to know about. No questions on that at all. What they all wanted to know about is what you do about fake news. Oh, interesting. That was the really obsessing them. And what, so, do you do, what do you do about fake uh, news? I don't think there's a... <laughs> my, <laughs> my answer at the time was to, to hope that the... Um, uh, that the ways of combating uh, fake news would grow in, harm, in parallel with, with the spread of fake news because the technologies that spread fake news all over the bots that spread it all over mm. the internet and everything there... Uh, the same technology can identify what's fake and what's not fake. Mm. Uh, hoping that that could be deployed to um, to keep tabs on what is true and untrue. I think it, it is being kept within bounds so far, but um, but some incredibly crazy stories spread and people believe them. Often, I, people in my age group tend to believe them. Often. Quite new to, to to social media, and if somebody, you know, a relative of your uncle Albert shares something on Facebook, you think, well, that must be true because he believed it. So yeah, <laughs> yeah, believe it. yeah. Uh, I never believe anything unless I can see, you know, credit is from a trusted source and has credible evidence behind it. Well, you've so, got that background, haven't yeah. you? So. <laughs> but even with my background, I've yeah. sometimes failed to spot, you know, fake stories. Yeah, um, yeah. I can spot them mostly, but occasionally I can't. How amateurs can supposed to spot it is is. Tricky, and it's not resolved. It's not resolved. It's uh, one of the biggest questions facing society. I think. Yeah, yeah, mm. definitely. And let's uh, let's talk about the book and mm -hmm. the upcoming book because that is really exciting. Um, so tell us about well as much as you can because I know it's not out there yet, is it, Brian? So oh, I can tell you plenty about it. Excellent. <laughs> it's a, it's, let, 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 it's available, widely available for pre-order. Oh, <laughs> 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 Take all forms of all forms of payment. Yeah. Um, <laughs> no, it's exciting. It's so. called Northerners: A History from the Ice Age to the Present Day, and it covers um, 180 million years of northern history. And the amazing thing is that um, um, it's only ever been there's only ever been one general history of the North previously published. I was astounded to discover and I started looking at it right? and that and that came out in 1990 so it's more than 30 years old yeah. so first for more than a generation history of the north and it comes out at a fascinating time with leveling up and the red wall and all these things happening 
it's in the news. So hopefully it's going to be very, very, um, um, very timely. It comes out in April. Right. Perfect. Uh, from a publisher called Harper North, which is a uh, a new recently set up imprint of HarperCollins um, based in Manchester. So, um, it's um, fingers crossed and there seems to be quite a lot of interest in it. So. Yeah, no, it's exciting. So, I mean, how, how long has it been from, I mean, a huge amount of research, I'd imagine you've had to do, Brian, for this. A, a lot of research, yes. And it, at first I worked, I started working on it before I left London, but slowly. And um, uh, I got, I, kind of the first five years since we moved back up here, I got rather more freelance work than I'd anticipated it I, I did it in a very lazy way. I just did things that people can ask me to do if it was reasonably interesting. Sure. But there wasn't, uh, I did, I was just getting along too slowly with the book. But then I, around about 2019, I started speeding up. I was getting on more rapidly. And then the pandemic came along and the, the lockdown, the lockdowns have been horrible for many people. But for me, it was an absolute gift. And mm. I started getting, getting along very, very rapidly. And fortunately, it's a big, broad book, so it's not one that involved a lot of primary research among archives, which were closed. Um, so I could, um, through its market online marketplaces, this new media was able, I was able to order dozens of relevant secondhand books from secondhand booksellers all over the world. Um, and they came thudding through my door several a day, and uh, <laughs> <laughs> I managed to get it substantially done over the pandemic. Yeah, and I, uh, so no, we're, just, we're just editing it, the final stages of editing it now. I finished it last April. Amazing, yeah. amazing. So, so talk me through the process of first idea for a book because some you know people listening might be thinking i think they say everyone's got a book in them yeah, <laughs> most people have got yeah. a book in them in some capacity it might not be history it yeah, might be in a totally yeah, different yeah. area but everyone they say everyone's got a book in them um so but for someone that's thinking of maybe writing a book mm -hmm. what's the process that, that you kind of you went through and that you would recommend most people to go through in terms of start to finish <laughs> i'm not sure i i recommend <laughs> maybe, not, maybe not the length of time but you know but the uh, principles <laughs> uh, i think it's not easy i think it's not easy there's no simple way of doing it and the bit of background about me is that i was an absolute history mad kid you remember i yeah, was really true. into history yeah. uh, but for various reasons i went off it in my sixth form years and i switched to so i read english at university but mm. i've come back to it in later years and if you put together um the uh, as a journalist which is like reporting on history as it's happening, mm. uh, plus my interest in regional affairs and love of the North. Uh, and it, it doesn't, uh, and the fact that I discovered that nobody had done this before for yeah. a long time. Yeah. So it doesn't, it's not hard to work out why I was interested in writing a book about the history of the mm. North. Mm. Um, so I decided to write it. Um, well, uh, it depends on the type of book you're writing. In my case, it's a big, broad book. So it did involve a lot of, um, it was like being a student again with the weekly essay, you know. Mm. After, you know so I thought, I, you know, I just, say I, I knew I've got a fortnight to do X chapter. So I've got, you know, I've got a um, week and a half to do the, to read bits of all the books and then a couple of two or three days to write the chapter. So yeah. that was new. But I'd, um, I got about, Halfway through it, and I decided to look for a publisher and an agent. Um, uh, I found an agent quite quickly. It was somebody I'd worked with as a journalist back in Scotland mm. um, 20 years ago, 30 years ago. And um, Harper North came along looking for 
things in their patch just at the point when I was ready to start offering the book round. So um, that made things easier. It might, there aren't many books about the North published, actually. That's one yeah, of the curious yeah. things. So I, did, I wasn't expecting it to be an easy sell. Right, right. <laughs> so I was lucky that, that a publisher came along covering that exact territory around the time that um, I was mm. looking to to get it out. Mm. So I think there's a couple of there's a couple of good, really good pieces of advice in, in amongst what you've just said there, which mm-hmm. actually holds true whether you're writing a book or you're just following a certain you know path in your career, business or whatever. Find something you're passionate about that you're genuinely interested <laughs> in. Um, I suppose how do you eat an elephant one 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 bite at a time? Break it down into you know the sort of what you need to do each day, each week in order to fulfil a chapter or whatever. <laughs> Use your network. Um, very effectively to to find you know the an editor and and um, uh, Harper mm-hmm. North that you found as well. So uh, yeah, it's it's I, I think it's such an exciting thing for you because it's been a while in the making. It's unique as well, isn't it? You know, we're relatively unique. Yeah, so, yeah. So it's you, know, you, you know, you've actually I mean, there have been histories of different parts of the you know Yorkshire not, or the North East or yeah. individual cities, but nobody's uh, the North's a funny entity. It's kind of um, most people's loyalties are actually to something closer to them um though they're particularly strong in say tyneside um or liverpool or yorkshire yeah um and people tend to only talk about themselves as northerners when they're talking about the south really (laughs) thing that that unites most northerners so so that's why there's not that much published about the north so Mm. it's trying to tap into some broader regional sense that uh it's part of people's identity, but people have multiple identities. So, yeah, of course. Yeah, they can identify with a local, with a local area, with a wider area, and um, with yeah. a country or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> Who's the target market then, Brian? Do you think in terms of people that are going to be I, interested in the book? Um, hopefully, anybody interested in British history and culture. There's a apart from the narrative. There's lots of cultural chapters in there. There's stuff on how the North-South language divide developed there's stuff on um um prominent um uh, northern women often reformers mm. uh, that there's stuff on how the on the story telling the story of the north's ethnic minorities which i don't think anybody's done in that form before no. there's stuff on slavery there's um uh there's stuff on the growth of the leisure industry including the growth of music hall and seaside towns and things like that in it so apart from you know battles and politics and castles and stuff and yeah. the, and obviously the industrial revolution is massive in it um, there's um there's all that stuff and lots of things that people are hopefully that people will uh they may think they know the story but they'll find oh they'll find fascinating things that they didn't know about yeah mm. god it sounds like it's uh it's going to be a great read i can't wait for it to come out do we get a friends and family discount? Uh, we can. Uh, uh, we might be able to negotiate that. <laughs> Always the hard businessman underneath all of this, you know, the journalist. Yeah. Actually, business is business. No, I love it. That's great. Actually, talking about actually, that, you, I should say to anyone listening, uh, if you look at in the on the pre-orders, uh, some if the, you, can, you can pre-order it from any any bookshop or from any of the big booksellers' websites, and um, 
Some of them do have discounts. Yeah. So it's a kind of... <laughs> there you go, you see. There you go. There's always a deal to be had. I found one with four quid off. <laughs> Pre-order to avoid disappointment yeah. is the message. But on a serious note, where so when when it does come out in April, Brian, where where's people can get it from Amazon, yeah. all good bookstores, and, oh, 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 bookshops, yeah, yeah, brilliant, yeah. bookshops and anywhere. Yes. Just Will you be doing um, a book signing? Will you be doing a bit of some sort of marketing in uh, advance of it coming out? Well, um, I've got a. I've worked out for myself. I've got, um, I think, so far forty-four bookings to speak at local history societies and U3A groups. I've done a couple already. I've got one I'm doing by Zoom on Wednesday. Um, so that's that's been the the big thing for me. I'll be trying to get into festivals as well and um, one or two other things. Oh, fantastic! Well, of course, and you know, and, and and you are you are well known in that world of journalism as well. You know, as you said you held you know the, all the the great positions that you've had. People will know who Brian Green well, is. Oh, some people, yes. I'm I'm not known as a historian. I've never written a history book. So, no, uh, but still. So I'm, I'm, yeah, so no, it's great. I, I think it's really exciting. No, fantastic. Well done to you, um, and. If someone was thinking of getting into journalism today, mm. any tips, any piece of advice, thing, approaches, things to watch out for? Um, well, it, it's, it's changed pretty dramatically since I got mm. in, or even since I was involved in hiring journalists, and it's yeah. it's 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 still a very popular option. Um, it's I wouldn't if somebody was really enthusiastic about it, I wouldn't advise against it. Mm. Um, because there aren't any secure professions anymore. It's clearly changing very rapidly mm. and you can't assume you get in and it lasts for 40 years. Sure. Um, <laughs> you've got to have a, uh, be very flexible that um, the, the whole technology made, technologies may change again uh, mm. for all we know over somebody's career. So you're going to have to go into it with, with, with eyes open. Um, um, but... For those who are keen on it, I can think of worse things to do. Yeah, it's because uh, you it's a it's a um, you get a front row seat on what's happening in society and in the world. Yeah, um, yeah. Uh, which is fascinating. So, yeah, so still a good profession then to, to get into. In your yeah, opinion. but not but a, but a tough one. Um, it always was quite it always was pretty hard to get into. It's very mm. hard to get into now. I mean, it, it's one of those things that's in, in demand and, and people do sometimes struggle. It's not easy. It's not yeah. an, don't go in expecting it to be an easy job. It's bloody hard. No, exactly. <laughs> well, I think there's a saying, isn't there? If you do what's easy, life will be hard. If you do what's yes, hard, life will yes, be easy. Yes. You know, so I think, I guess, I think, I think that, that holds true in most, most professions, doesn't it? But I guess um, maybe one of the changes, do you think the business side of, of journalism and being an editor is, is probably a big deal than it maybe was historically just because of the pressure and the competition um do you think that's that's harder now to commercialize newspapers and media um, outlets it was it's been pretty hard throughout most of my but, career to be okay. honest um yeah. I, <laughs> I can't think of anything commercially harder than launching a new newspaper it was yeah. it was the hardest thing i've done in my working life by a long, long way. Was it? Uh, it was a pretty difficult launch. Uh, with new launches, you were, uh, uh, two things happen. You um, undershoot your circulation targets and you uh, undershoot your commercial targets as well. And both those things happened to us earlier on. The paper had um, three editors in the first six months fortunately none of, none of them me because i've <laughs> i might have been an ex-editor very quickly yeah and it's no it was never secure throughout my time 
editors and all the papers are coming and going. Um, so I used to go to meetings of the Scottish Daily Newspaper Society Editors Committee, and each time we kind of looked with relief around the room and saw there were still the same faces there, and they yeah. hadn't all moved on. Yeah, so that's so it's that's always a, always a precarious position. Pretty cutthroat. And I was fired at the end of my ten years. They're fired by Andrew Neil. So, were you? Yeah, yeah. How did so, that conversation go? Um, quite politely, actually. <laughs> <laughs> well, you are always the consummate gentleman, Brian, of course. <laughs> you didn't throw a chair at him or anything. <laughs> no, no, no. And indeed, um, he was more famous than me, so he'd opened doors in terms of getting the next job. I was in private eye a lot during that period. And, uh, and I found it uh, all the... Uh, so I tried to get him to see all the Fleet Street editors and they're all fascinated to know what, what had happened. So, that so that's help. how you turn a negative into a positive, you see. Yes, There's always an opportunity well. yes, in any adversity, isn't there? Yes. But from a mindset point of view, did, did that knock you? Or were you kind of, that's fine, I can deal with it, I'm just going to crack on? Or, or did it take a while to sort of regroup and, and you know? Or... I mean, obviously it was quite a knock and my family, it's quite a bigger knock for my family, I think, because we yeah. had to move from Edinburgh. We've been living there for 10 years. Our mm. children have grown up there. Uh, for me, I think um, it was it was a difficult period. It was actually less bruising than the launch period, right. which was just very very tough. So, and it wasn't completely unexpected, and it wasn't really my fault. So, um, and it didn't last all that long. Um, I was thinking of various options, but I got offers within a month or two. So, yeah, okay. So um, I was not out there for any difficult period. No. And I had a few offers. So. Yeah, which is, which is a good position. But that comes from all of the years prior of, you know, reputation, credentials, integrity, having done previous great jobs as well at the That, at the that does help. I know. Yeah. I, I thought I was, um, when I went to launch Scotland on Sunday, I was 32. And mm. uh, I... Uh, in, on one level, it was completely crazy. Um, um, I left a. I was in a middling senior position on the Financial Times. On the world, I was UK news editor on uh, at an early age, at the end of my twenties, uh, on the, one of the world's great papers. And I left to launch this underfunded um, new paper in a country I didn't know. Uh, we sold our London house. My wife left her job. Um, we had two children under five. On the face of it, it was completely nuts. Yeah. But I did think at the time, if you're going to do something a bit crazy, do it when you're young enough to recover. Yeah. And that actually played was out. what happened. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, because then you would have been, what, 42 when, every, when you then, 42, yeah, 43. Yeah, about, yeah. Which yeah, is still, which is still um, you know, young, pretty young to be able to kind of launch back into the next stage of your career, yeah, isn't it, as yeah, well? Yeah, so. it was young enough, however. So. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So, so when you think about your um, illustrious career, Brian, and it's been um, pretty prolific, I would say, can you think of any, well, it doesn't have to be career, actually, it could be personal life as well, of course, um, can you think of any really good advice that, that you've been given that's kind of stayed with you or has held you, <laughs> held you, held you in to account um, all these years? I don't think I've ever had a lot of professional advice, actually. <laughs> um, but the, the the one fairly banal thing that somebody said early on that I think you hear said in a lot of professions, somebody said, I was when I was being interviewed and I was trying to get in, the editor of a group of weeklies who used to work on our national said to me, I always try to help young journalists on their way up because you never know when you're going to meet them on the way down. 
Mm. I think that is quite a, quite a good lesson in uh, uh, in in most professions and business spheres. Yeah. <laughs> would, uh, yeah, that's probably the one I would remember. There. Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. And yeah. and also, I think you know, the more um, progress you get with your career, whatever field you're in, I always think it's a, it's a responsibility to help the next generation up. You know, I mean, I've always had great mentors, coaches, people who have really helped me with my career. Mm-hmm. And it's almost like you know, not an obligation, but you know, to give back mm-hmm. is a nice thing, isn't it? As well. And presumably, you, have you had great inspiring inspiring people? So, that have... Yes, yes, I have. Though as. as uh, as, as you know, if, if once you get into senior management positions, you can't be nice to everybody and you are making decisions that make and break people's careers. Yes. And that is a big responsibility. And there are, there are people in life that have to take my guts because of decisions I've made. Yeah. I just, you just try and do your best with those. But yeah, no, I've, um, I've, I've, I've worked with some brilliant journalists. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, one who inspired me particularly was, um, uh, and I was on the FT's Labour reporting team in the early 80s. My boss was the Labour editor, was John Lloyd, who was a Scot who worked for the FT and other papers for a long time. And um, his his reporting of the miners' strike um, earned him the um, Journalist of the Year Award. Um, yeah. So just watching him work uh, during that period was an absolute inspiration. Yeah, yeah. And you understand it's a profession you've stayed in all these years mm. and you've got had the passion, you've still got the passion for it. You can see that, you know, you must look look at um, with great interest what's happening, you know, in, in the world of newspapers and journalism every day, now even. Uh, yeah, well, you get you get used to that, and it's um, it's better than working in some ways. <laughs> <laughs> You're in a position of choice, which is lovely. Absolutely. And can you think of any advice that you have been given that maybe wasn't so good that you took that you thought mm-hmm. wish I had done that, or that maybe it was so bad at the time that you just ignored it and cracked on anyway? Well, in um, uh, when I was still a student, I was thinking I was thinking about what to do for a living. Um, and thinking possibly about journalism, I, I asked um, my mum's next door neighbour in Sale in South Manchester, because he was a sub-editor on the Manchester Reading News and having three years. Oh. So I asked him for his advice and he said, forget newspapers, they're finished. Um, television's the thing. Go into television. Really? <laughs> well, I went into newspapers and they, they've seen me out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right, great stuff. God, yeah. So that got, what, where, how long ago would that have been then when he, when he gave you that piece of paper? Uh, that would have been 1976. Wow. Yes. Gosh, stuck in your mind though. <laughs> stuck, stuck in your mind. Yeah, so you took the opposite path, which is yes. that. <laughs> Stood you in great stead. That's fantastic. So, Brian. There's one reason why when you asked me before. Yes. Uh, I wouldn't advise, even though it's really difficult now, I wouldn't necessarily advise a young person going into it against it on the grounds that it's dying. Um, no, no. Who knows? Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, evolving, right? Evolving, Constantly evolving. Yeah. I mean, people say the same, you know, I spent most of my career in the travel industries, you know, mm, and, yeah. you know, for, right from, you know, when did I get into travel? 95. And then everyone's mm-hmm. saying, oh, the death of the travel agent and tour operator. <laughs> okay, so the industry has changed, you know, but there is still still travel yeah. agents around. <laughs> but it's, it's this sort of, you know, um, you know, combination mm-hmm. of technology and people, mm-hmm. I think, mm-hmm. that's interesting in most, most sectors. So yeah, no, it's uh, fascinating actually. So when um, when people are trying to find uh, connect with you, in particular with the book launch coming out in April, where can people find you, Brian? What's the best way to track uh, you down? Yeah, yeah. Um, the the best way is probably on Twitter. Actually, great. And yours, Brian Groom on, on Twitter. Uh, Groom B. Groom yeah. B. You've always just Google my name. Uh, it's not that difficult to find me. <laughs> 
No. Uh, people seem to manage <laughs> one way or another. Uh, we'll um, take that as a good, as a good reason they, try to, they find you. But, you know, you can find me on Twitter. That's probably the best, probably the best way. But I'm on, I'm on Facebook. I'm on um, LinkedIn. And, um, and if you look really hard, you'll find my email address somewhere as well. Yeah. <laughs> Excellent. Well, we'll include all the links to your social yeah. media in the show yeah. notes so everyone can track you down ready for that. Uh, those fantastic pre-launch offers that you uh, you kindly put out there. <laughs> um, so my final question, Brian, if I may, uh, what does Brave, Bold, Brilliant mean to you? Uh, for me, personally, it, it, I think it means just trying to tell the truth to the best of your ability. I've been hugely lucky that I've been in jobs that where that's been expected and a requirement, and it's not always. But in the in the environment we're now in, particularly, uh, it's 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 really important. It's not easy, you know. In truth is not a simple thing. But just do your best to tell the truth, backed up by the evidence as you can see it. Simple yeah. as that. Fantastic. I love that. That's great. And it's been an absolute pleasure chatting with you. I'm very lucky because Brian's my cousin as well as I dropped in early, early at the uh, start. But um, no, fascinating career and one which you should rightly feel very proud of and really looking forward to the book launch. Fantastic. So thank, thank you, you for, for that. On. Brilliant. Thank you. <laughs> I really hope you've enjoyed Brave, Bold, Brilliant. Don't forget to subscribe and share with all your friends. And if you've enjoyed listening, I'd love it if you'd leave me a five star review.